Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. I need to apologize for my voice. I'm uh, dealing with this um, upper respiratory illness the past week or so. On Sunday, I lost my voice. And so I know some of y'all are praying against me right now because you want to get out of chapel early. But I, uh, I trust that my voice will, will last. I also want to give a disclaimer. When the um, chapel schedule was first posted, there was a typo. And it said that I'd be giving a faulty lecture this morning. And so I hope that this is not a, a faulty lecture, but uh, a faculty lecture. And the topic that I would like to speak with you about today is the topic of a, a Christian view of near-death experiences. A Christian view of near-death experiences. The topic of um, near-death experiences is, is a topic that really wasn't on, on my radar screen um, until about three or four years ago. I was teaching a, a, a class here on campus, a, a course that we offer called The Ethics of Life and Death, and the students in the, the course asked if, if that was a topic that we would cover. And that was the first week of class. I hadn't really thought much about this topic, and so of course I told the students, well, of course that's on the schedule, and we'll cover that you know, toward, towards the end of the semester. And I started to, to do some, some research. I started to think about the topic, and about the same time I was asked by a couple of radio shows if I would come on the air and speak on this topic. I saw Christianity Today, 2012, December, uh, the cover story uh, was this topic. And so all this was kind of coming together at the same time in my life. And so I put together uh, a re real quick kind of four-page outline, a teaching outline on this topic that I thought I would use as I was going on the radio and thought I could use it later on in the semester to teach on this topic. And I was still kind of thinking it was a topic that really wasn't of much interest uh, to average evangelical believers. And so as I often do, I put the outline out on the internet. I posted it on a a file sharing website called Scribd, which perhaps some of you have, have seen before or used before. It's a website where you can post files, you can sell books and things like that. And so I posted this file up there for free, just a four-page outline on this topic. And within four days, it, it, it had been downloaded 50,000 times, which was a sign to me that evangelical Christians are interested in this topic. Of course, I thought I probably shouldn't have made it for free. I probably should have charged for it. I could have made some money on that. But all this kind of came together in my life. Uh, to kind of bring this topic uh, to my attention um, about three or four years ago. And so for the past uh, three or four years, I've been speaking in various venues uh, on this topic. And I thought today, as they asked me to give the faculty lecture, it'd be an appropriate topic that might be of use and interest uh, to you personally, the topic of near-death experiences. And so kind of just by way of introduction, a few thoughts here. I, what I kind of would like to do is here uh, is give a brief introduction, uh, go through a bit of the history uh, of the topic as well talk about a, uh, a biblical view of death and dying and resurrections and visions of heaven and scripture, and then and at the end perhaps offer some critiques um, of some of the books that are out there uh, that purport to give accounts of what's been called heavenly tourism, of people going to heaven or even to hell uh, and coming back to tell their accounts. Well, interesting that the, um, this genre of books, and perhaps you've seen some of these books you know, that have been, been published over the past five years, near-death experience books have sold more copies 
more books than all Bible commentaries and Bible reference works combined, which just shows you the massive amount of these books that are being sold and that are being produced and, and that are, are out there. As a matter of fact, near-death experience books are the most financially lucrative type of nonfiction books in the history of Christian publishing. Right? And so this is not a, a small um, little idea. Uh, there are people in your church that are, are reading these books that give accounts people have given of near-death experiences, and there are people in my church, and maybe some here in the room, maybe you've even read uh, some of the books that have been, been produced. And I guess in general, I'll cut to the chase and tell you that personally I'm very skeptical of these books, of these accounts. I do have some biblical and theological problems that I'd like to raise with near-death experience literature. But beyond that, there's a sense in which I'm kind of encouraged by people in our churches, people in our classes that are displaying an interest in death, an interest in heavenly things, an interest in knowing more uh, about hell and the afterlife. Uh, Philippians 3 verse 20, uh, Paul there says that our citizenship is in heaven. And so if our citizenship truly is in heaven, I think it's quite logical. Uh, it's right, it's good for you and I to be asking questions uh, about what that means. Colossians 3, 1 and 2, Paul says, set your mind on things that are above and not on things that are on the earth. And so while I'm, I'm skeptical of many of these books that have been published, uh, and, and really, honestly, I'm kind of disturbed by the way that probably people in our church are actually consuming the books and the way that they're uncritically think, thinking about them, I am encouraged by the phenomena in the sense that it does show um, an interest in things of heaven, an interest in knowing more about the afterlife and, and things of that nature. And so let me go walk through here just a, a brief bit of, of history. Um, of course, as you're aware, every major religion uh, has a belief in the afterlife, whether it be nirvana, which would be the Buddhist conception of the afterlife, the Elysium Fields from Greek literature, Valhalla, which is the Norse idea of the afterlife, utopia, a secular idea of the af afterlife, or just heaven, uh, a Jewish and Christian idea of the afterlife. We all have this conception of the afterlife, and everybody wants to know, well, what happens once we die? Uh, what happens as we uh, pass from uh, this, this earth and, and go forward. And so since there's this commonality of belief in the afterlife, uh, thus uh, I think the human race is in general primed to sort of uh, consume and ask questions about near-death experiences. Um, going back in, in history, we, we can even go back to the, to the um, medieval times. Uh, it was quite common among Christians uh, in the Middle Ages to um, give accounts of death and return, and even used you know, by way of oftentimes trying to scare people uh, into heaven, talking about someone who had passed on and come back and had seen perhaps the horrors of hell uh, or seen the glories of heaven, uh, and accompanying a gospel presentation with that uh, and trying to get folks to think more about, about heaven. But beyond that, kind of in our, in our own current context, how do we get to where we are today, uh, where there are millions upon millions of books uh, being published, being sold by evangelical Christian publishers that purport to give accounts uh, by believers like you and I uh, of near-death experiences. Well, it actually goes back to 1969. There was a, a book that was published in a secular realm titled On Death and Dying uh, by the author Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, which is a name that, that you may recognize if you've taken some counseling courses here or a psychology course back in, in high school or college. Uh, Kubler-Ross was a Swiss-American psychiatrist who is best, no, best known for 
uh, postulating what's known as the, the five stages of, of grief theory, uh, which most of us probably have heard. And so she put forth that. But she also wrote a, a book here um, on death and dying, 1969, that was her study of the afterlife. And she was writing as an atheist, trying to document uh, cases of individuals uh, who had purportedly uh, died and come back to life. And her purpose was more or less to kind of analyze what they said, uh, to perhaps uh, deal with the psychology of it and explain the chemical reactions in the brain that were producing such ideas. And so her book on death and dying actually became sort of an um, unintended bestseller. Uh, it, it started to take off in the secular market. Um, she later on uh, kind of moved uh, from her atheism to embrace the new age and the occult, um, eventually actually came, ironically, to deny the concept of death itself. Uh, and so, she's, of course, she's passed away now, so she's probably changed her view. But the, um, On Death and Dying is, is the first book, really, in, in, the, in the modern context that gave an account of near-death experiences. A second book, uh, titled Life After Life by Raymond Moody, is really more the, the book that kind of, um, if, if you will, kind of cracked the code for, for Christians. Moody was, um, was raised uh, Presbyterian. Uh, he was writing as a, uh, as a doctor, as a psychologist, and writing in a very similar way to Kubler-Ross, uh, trying to document and explain uh, the, the events that surround uh, someone's dying. And, and he was cataloging uh, different accounts of folks who had uh, purportedly died and come back to life. But perhaps even unintentionally, um, Moody used a lot of biblical imagery, a lot of biblical language. Uh, which, unlike Kubler-Ross's book, it kind of caused uh, his book to be, to be read by many Christians. Uh, it started to be quoted by Christians, and so this is 1975. And even probably in your vocabulary, in your thoughts about heaven, you're probably familiar with the idea of kind of going through a, you know, a tunnel of light, going towards a great light. And that entire imagery comes from Moody's book. It sold over 13 million copies, uh, and it's actually still in print today. Uh, spent some... 20-plus weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. And just kind of by way, kind of the frame, what we mean when I say 13 million copies, at any given time in our country, there are 1.4 million books in print in English. And of those 1.4 million books that are in print at any given time in our, our language, only 50,000 of them, or 0.4 of 1%, will ever sell 1,000 copies. So if you have dreams of, of, of being rich by being an author, uh, good luck with that. <laughs> it's, it's very rare uh, that, that a book sells 1,000 copies. Well, here, Moody's book sells 13 million copies, right? Well, after his book, there's a third book that was in the secular arena titled Embraced by the Light, written by Betty Eady, 1992. And this book really is the book uh, that sparked what I would refer to as the evangelical phenomena of near-death experience books. Edie's book um, also sold more than 13 million copies, spent 78 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. And unlike the previous two books I mentioned, Edie's book was unique in that it, it gave um, her own account. She, she herself claimed to have passed away during a surgery uh, and had come back uh, to life. And so this is the first time where, where we actually have a, a very popular, a widely uh, selling book it actually is a personal account of someone's own travel to heaven and back purportedly. If you read her book, it's actually uh, pretty bad. I would actually encourage you not to read it. 
It's chock full of New Age, occult, and especially Mormon uh, uh, phenomena in language. But she actually wrote claiming to be an evangelical Christian. And so we fast forward um, to more towards the, the modern, modern times. And uh, three other books that, that I'll mention that you're probably more familiar with that are published um, by evangelical Christian publishers. The first one, Heaven is for Real. You've heard of Heaven is for Real, right? Uh, written by uh, Todd Burpo and Lynn Vincent, uh, which gives the account purportedly uh, of Todd's uh, four-year-old son, Colton, and his account, uh, his travel to heaven and came back. Uh, book sold more than 10 million copies to date, uh, published in 2010. It's been on the New York Times bestseller list for uh, over 50 weeks. And even last year, there was a movie uh, that was produced uh, by the prosperity gospel preacher T.D. Jakes, uh, and it was, was produced uh, for the cinema, uh, grossed over $101 million to, to date. And there are many people in your church, trust me, if you haven't read it, people in your church, your small group, are reading uh, Heaven is for Real. Second book, um, also in the evangelical arena, 90 Minutes in Heaven uh, by Don Piper. That's not John Piper, <laughs> it's Don, Don Piper, who was a Baptist minister, uh, wrote a book 2006, and sold over 6 million copies to, to date, and gives his account uh, of his, his supposed hour and a half uh, that he spent uh, in heaven after a tragic car accident. Uh, he was pronounced dead at, uh, but yet was resuscitated and came back to life. Only about 15 pages, actually, in Piper's book are actually about heaven. Uh, most of the book's actually about suffering uh, and his struggle to overcome his injuries. It's actually not a bad book if you skip the part about going to heaven and coming back. But 90 Minutes in Heaven by, by Don Piper. Last book, uh, The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven, a true story by Kevin Malarkey, which I think is an appropriate last name. Uh, gives uh, the account of his, his son Alex's uh, near-death experience. Uh, a terrible car accident. Alex was left a quadriplegic at age six. Uh, and this book gives his accounts uh, of his son's uh, travels to heaven and back. Sold more than a million copies. It was made into a made-for-television movie uh, that was on television two years ago. Although interesting, as early as 2012, and so just two years after this book was published by Tyndale, um, uh, Kevin uh, and his mother, uh, Beth, uh, began to make public statements uh, questioning the authenticity of the book uh, that Alex's father had, had written. And we'll come back to that in a bit. And so uh, that's sort of just a, the brief history here. But for the sake of time, let me fast forward. And I want to talk just a little bit uh, about death and dying and just a, a general kind of Christian view of death and dying. And let me give a quick advertisement. Uh, tomorrow, um, at, at this very hour, from, from 10 until 12, uh, Southeastern's uh, past, Pastors Training Center is going to be having a workshop uh, that I'll be speaking at on death, dying, and funerals. It's going to be over in Appleby Chapel uh, from 10 till 12. Uh, Dr. Sam Williams, Dr. John Ewart, Dr. Bill Boyer, and myself will be giving a workshop on death and dying and funerals, and it's free. And so come and be part of that tomorrow at 10 in Appleby Chapel. But that, that commercial given, um, just, just real quick, a few, a few thoughts here about death and dying. You know, scripture does encourage us uh, to think about, uh, to be introspective about death and dying. Moses wrote in Psalm 90, verses 10 and 12, he says, The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of, 80, uh, of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble, and they are soon gone, and we fly away. And so, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Right? And so Moses encourages us I mean, to think about the brevity of life, 
to think about our approaching death, right? And so it's really kind of because of this, I said earlier, I'm actually encouraged by people who are starting to ask questions about death and dying and heaven and the afterlife. And I think that, that these are good questions to ask. Of course, as Christ taught in the parable Luke 12, 16 through 21, we're, we're actually fools uh, if we don't uh, consider our, our approaching death, if we make plans uh, for tomorrow without considering today. And even over in James 4, 13 through 15, James says that rather than making statements, making plans about tomorrow, about next month, about next year, instead we should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So the idea is just that we are to be conscious, we are to be introspective about death, about what it is, and about all that is, is before us um, after uh, the present life. Well, what is a biblical definition of death? I'll be talking more about this tomorrow in chapel, but just I would say just a, a real brief biblical definition of death uh, is that it's when the spirit has, has left the body. Uh, and so I bring that up to say that a lot of the, the, the supposed near-death experience uh, accounts that you'll find uh, in, in both the Christian and non-Christian literature, it's interesting in that it doesn't actually really purport to give uh, a, an account of, of someone who, who has actually died in the sense of uh, you know, their brain has ceased functioning, the heart has stopped beating. Sometimes it's, it's more kind of, of an out-of-body experience sort of account. The, and I guess sort of my question in general, does that actually match up with a biblical definition of what death actually is? Well, beyond that, I think that we need to keep in mind as we talk about death, which again, I would encourage us to do and think about, we do need to keep in mind that death is actually our enemy. When people tell me that they're actually looking forward to dying uh, one day, that they're tired of their labors here in the present earth, and they're looking forward to passing on and going to be with Jesus, I mean, I certainly, I, I certainly get that, and I appreciate that, that notion, but we need not to forget, as Paul says, death is our enemy. Death is our last enemy. Death is inevitable, but death is not natural. And so I think we need to frame the way that we talk about death in that context, of course, keeping in mind uh, that we need not fear death, for death has been defeated by Christ. Second Timothy 1 verse 10, Paul writes, Our Savior Christ Jesus abolished death and brought life and immortality um, through the gospel. Right? And so we need not be afraid of death. Hebrews 2 and verse 15 there, the writer of Hebrews says that Christ came to release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Yes, we are destined to die, but to die is gain, as Paul says. But let's not make death uh, more of a goal uh, and hold it up to be more natural than the way Scripture actually talks about it. Um, just kind of one last note here on, on death and dying that, that I'll, I'll mention uh, is that if you, if you read back through Christian history, and of course I would encourage you to do that, interestingly that, I mean, you know, we talk about spiritual disciplines, right? And when I say spiritual disciplines, probably most of you think about things like praying, about Bible reading, uh, about perhaps fasting or having a time of silence and solitude, uh, the, the Christian disciplines. But if you go back and you read through Christian history, one of the most important, one of the most often talked about uh, Christian spiritual disciplines was actually the, the discipline of dying well, uh, of dying well. Probably most of us here in the room, if someone asked us, uh, you know, how would you like to die? Um, most of us would probably say, well, I, I would actually probably prefer to die in a very pain, painless and quick manner, you know, perhaps in my sleep, pass away one night. Uh, you know, but certainly what I want to avoid is some long, drawn-out, prolonged, painful death. But if you look back through history, 
Actually, that long, prolonged, drawn-out death uh, is what most Christians desired. That was what was referred to as dying well, uh, because uh, a long, uh, drawn-out death, it it provided several benefits. I mean, things like, for example, saying goodbye to to loved ones. Things like uh, the opportunity to be reconciled uh, to those with whom you're at odds. Things like giving you the opportunity to put your house in order, uh, spiritually, financially, relationally. and even a chance to be sure of your relationship with God. And so, um, dying well, uh, a bit of a rabbit trail that we don't have time to chase, but something that if you look back through history, uh, Christians uh, talked about quite often, uh, and, and certainly much more so than we do today. Well, real quick, a brief overview of resurrections in the Bible, as I was kind of doing some background research and kind of wanting to have a Christian perspective to be able to talk about near-death experiences. I reviewed uh, just, uh, the, the ten different occasions uh, of resurrections in the Bible. And I don't have time to, to walk through these um, in, uh, in depth here now, but just mention that there are ten instances of resurrection in the Bible, seven in the Old Testament, or rather, seven in the New Testament, three in the Old Testament. And the examples that you'd find if you look are these. There is the widow of Zarephath's uh, son. Uh, that was part of Elijah's ministry, 1 Kings 17, 17 through 24. There was the Shunammite's child in 2 Kings 4, 32 and following. That was part of Elisha's ministry. And so both Elijah and Elisha had the opportunity to resurrect uh, somebody. Uh, There's also the the dead man who touched Elisha's bones in 2 Kings 13, verse 21. You'll recall that account there where they were burying a man and there was no time to have a proper burial. And so they just threw him in Elisha's tomb and he touched Elisha's bones and came back to life. I often wondered why they didn't use that hole more often. <laughs> Someone dies and just kind of check them in the hole, they can come back to life, right? Now those accounts in the Old Testament are the three resurrection narratives. And then the seven in the New Testament. First of all, there is Jairus' daughter. Uh, this is the only resurrection um, account other than Christ's that is reported uh, in more than one gospel. Uh, there is the widow of Nain's son in Luke 7. That's one of the few miracles that Christ actually did not being asked to do. That would be a great sermon series for you. Do a study of miracles that Christ wasn't asked to do, but he nevertheless did. There in Luke 7, it reports as Christ was entering the city of Nain and there's a funeral procession coming out. Christ takes it upon himself uh, to raise the widow's son, a uh, Another example that doesn't relate to this lecture that I think of uh, that Christ wasn't asked to do there, as Matthew records, the healing of, um, of Peter's mother-in-law. I often thought about that as they, they go to Peter's house and Peter's mother-in-law is there ill. And Peter's there preparing some food perhaps and he looks over and Jesus has the prayer hands ready to heal his mother-in-law. <laughs> it's like slow motion. He's like, no. He's <laughs> jumping across to stop him. But Christ nevertheless heals Peter's mother-in-law. The, uh, that's not a resurrection account though. Uh, as well, uh, thirdly, in the New Testament, there is certain unnamed saints, Matthew 27, uh, 52 and 53. This is the account after Christ's death. It reports that there are a certain number of unnamed saints who are resurrected and are, are seen walking around Jerusalem. You have to be very careful what you uh, think about that verse and what you write about that verse. Um, that's certainly an example. There's also Christ himself uh, being resurrected. Uh, there's the, the example of Lazarus in John chapter 11. Interesting, uh, that account, Lazarus being in paradise for four entire days uh, and Christ resurrecting him, him coming back. There's the account of Dorcas in Acts 9 as part of Peter's ministry. There where he raises uh, Dorcas or Tabitha. 
uh, after she has, has died. And lastly, there is the account of Eutychus, or Eutyches, as some pronounce it in Acts 20, uh, part of Paul's ministry, the young man who fell asleep uh, during Paul's sermon and falls out of the window of three stories and, and dies, and Paul kindly goes and raises him to life. I'm not sure that I would do that if someone fell asleep during my sermon, but Paul, Paul does that. And so those examples uh, of resurrection in Scripture, but if you note a commonality between all these examples of resurrections, all ten of them, there's not a single one of them who came back from the dead and gave an account of what they saw. Uh, there's no grand narrative from Lazarus after four days in the grave uh, of the glories he saw uh, and of angels flying around and rainbow-colored horses that he rode on and the various other minutiae that we find in the, in the current popular books that, that are being sold. Now beyond that, there are, there, are, there are a number of visions of heaven in the Bible. I thought real quickly I could just list these for you. Um, there's actually seven different occasions where somebody actually uh, has a vision of heaven and does give a brief account of what he sees. Although these certainly aren't near-death experiences, they are actually descriptions of heaven. Uh, there's the account of Micaiah in Second Chronicles 18. This is the prophet who foretold uh, Ahab's death. Of course, Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, has a vision of the throne room of God in heaven. Ezekiel chapter 1 and chapter 10 I'm thankful I don't have time to, have to, to go through Ezekiel 1 and explain that crazy vision that he saw. There's Daniel, Daniel 7, probably one of the most clearest accounts uh, of what heaven's actually like, of what God actually is like. Daniel 7, verses 9 and 10, where Daniel actually sees the very throne room of God in heaven, and he comes back and he tells us about God's uh, flowing white hair and talks about him as the Ancient of Days. That's Daniel 7, 9 and 10. Of course, Paul talks about his trip to heaven, 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 4. There's Stephen in Acts 7, verse 55, who has a vision of, of heaven at, at his martyrdom. And then John, of course, has three chapters at least in Revelation 4 through 6, as he gives us an account there. And so, these likewise, um, like those who had, had gone to heaven and come back, the resurrections, these accounts, uh, these visions of heaven, um, like the resurrections, don't actually have any detailed accounts of what they actually saw and what transpired, but there are a few clues, and just a few verses I'll read to you that to, kind of, to give you kind of the common description of what these men saw and how they describe heaven. Isaiah 6, verse 5, Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so Isaiah talks about God and his glory, and is petrified at what he saw. Ezekiel 1, verse 28, Ezekiel says, Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard a voice of one speaking. So Ezekiel sees God, and he falls on his face. Daniel, Daniel 10, verse 9, he writes, Then I heard the sound of his words, and I heard the sound of his words, and I fell on my face in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. So like Ezekiel, Daniel sees God or a vision of God, or a vision of heaven, and it falls down on his face. And same thing with John in Revelation 1, in verse 17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. So it's interesting uh, that these accounts that we actually have of people seeing heaven, seeing God, seeing the glories of heaven, they come back and they talk about fear and reverence and worship and glory. And th these are the common themes that we see uh, from those who had glimpses into heaven. And so with that background, let me real quickly here kind of walk through and, and give you just a brief analysis of near-death accounts in, in the books 
that are out there and, and what, what people are, are saying. And I've got seven sort of uh, points of contention or seven critiques, if you will, or points of discussion that I usually bring up. And these are they. Number one, it's difficult to critique those who have had near-death experiences precisely because they are individual experiences. Right? And so if someone comes to you, if someone writes a book and they're, they're accounting a supposed near-death experience, you or I really have no grounds to actually um, comment on whether or not, not they actually had an experience because we weren't there. But what we can do is we can take how they describe their experience and we can hold it up to the content of Scripture and what Scripture tells us. And we can then reach a conclusion as to perhaps whether or not what they saw is what they think they saw. Right? And so difficult to critique authoritatively but not very difficult to hold up what people say in light of what the Word tells us. And of course, we're actually told, 1 Thessalonians 5.21, to test everything and to hold fast to what is good. We're supposed to not believe every spirit, 1 John 4.1, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out until the world. Number two, there are, as I would say by default, there are de facto many scripture passages that seem to rule out the possibility of near-death experiences, at least in the sense of the modern phenomena. So just kind of for the sake of time, let me just read these to you. Uh, Proverbs 30, verse 4, the writer of Proverbs asks rhetorically, who has ascended to heaven and come down? And the rhetorical answer is no one, no one. No one has ascended to heaven and come down. John 3, verse 13, Jesus teaches, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And so Jesus says, no one's gone to heaven and come back except for myself, for Christ, that is. Hebrews 9, verse 27, Paul says, or the writer of Hebrews says, it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. And so we're told that we will die once and, and then be judged, not die and come back. Exodus 33, verse 20, Moses writes, According God, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And even Moses himself, only able to see God's, God's backside. John 6, verse 46, Jesus says, No one has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father, referring to himself. Christ having seen the Father and no one else. 1 Timothy 6, verse 16, Paul says, God dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. And so if we just take these verses at face value, uh, and there are others, that just, uh, the, the, the total teaching is that no one has gone to heaven and come back, that no one has seen the Father face to face except for the Son. Indeed, nobody can see the Father face to face. And so when I read accounts uh, of people saying they have gone to heaven and they've seen God, and this is what he looks like, and this is what he wants me to tell you, I think that, that really puts, you, puts your... Uh, puts your account on dangerous grounds uh, when it comes just to a natural reading of, of Scripture. Number three, as I was, was noted before, those in Scripture who were resurrected from the dead uh, or had visions of heaven did not give detailed accounts of the afterlife. And so, for example, when we have Paul in first, or 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 4, and, and Paul says that I went to heaven and I came back. Uh, and, even being so humble about it, to say, I know of somebody, I know a man who went to heaven and came back. But this man, he, he saw things that are unutterable, that are not lawful for man to tell. I, I really question then when an apostle could go to heaven and come back uh, and, and not be allowed to tell us about it. 
I question when a young child supposedly dies and goes to heaven and comes back and wants to tell us about it. I question when a casual church attender has died and comes back and says they've been to heaven and wants to tell us about the details of it. It just doesn't happen in Scripture. Uh, It's not that no one is resurrected in Scripture. It's just that when they are, no one comes back with fanciful accounts of what they saw. And beyond that, number four, I would say this as a whole, these near-death experience books, they lack theological precision, and they seem really to be focused on personal experience and minutia. So when you read through these books, what you find is accounts of winged angels, of literal jeweled gates, of shining rivers, of literal streets that are paved in gold, of horses that are rainbow-colored, of reptile-like demons whose job it is to persecute those who have gone to hell, of a blue-eyed Jesus in a blonde-haired God the Father, and on and on it goes. And so when you read these accounts, not that these perhaps couldn't be real, but in the limited accounts that we have in Scripture, it's, I was on my face as a dead person. Woe is me. There is fear. There is reverence. There's not minutia. Uh, There's not personal experience. And so what I'm saying is I, I just don't see that these accounts that we read in these books, that they line up with the accounts we have in, in Scripture. And beyond that, number five, Christian near-death experience books often don't agree with each other in their details about heaven. And so it really kind of puts you and me in, in really a precarious position. So if we want to grant that someone's account of heaven is true, we have to say, first of all, this doesn't seem to be the way that the writers of Scripture describe heaven, that you're not focusing on the things that they focus on, but perhaps what you've written is true. But then which book is true? Because when you read them, and I, I've read almost all of them, just a, a few of the examples uh, where there's, there's not agreement, the age of those in heaven. Some of these books say that everyone is of the optimal age. Everyone is 18 to 21, which I hope is the case. Others say, no, you, that you are the age that you are when you die. And so there are infants, there are children, there are adults, uh, there are the elderly. One book says that we all age in heaven. We're gradually getting older. One book says that we don't age. One book says that we all have wings in heaven. One book says that we don't have wings. One book says that we all work and labor and engage in vocation in heaven. One book says we sit back and relax. One book says that there's incredible conflict in heaven still between God and Satan. One book says it's a complete paradise and there's just total rest. One book says that we communicate Uh, just by our thoughts, uh, telepathically. One book says that we talk. One book says angels have many wings. One book says angels have no wings. And so, which book is going to be your source of authority? Well, I know which book is my source of authority. So, these books don't agree in their, their details. Number six, and perhaps really of most concern to me is this. The Bible never instructs believers to base or bolster their faith on someone else's account of heaven. So when someone in my church comes, up, comes to me and says, you know, I saw that movie, I read that book, and my, my faith was, was strengthened, that, that really, is, really is of concern to me because I read, as Paul writes in Romans 10, verse 17, and so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. The Holy Spirit works by guiding us in truth, the revealed truth of Scripture, not by giving you a warm fuzzy because of someone else's narrative of their heavenly tourism trip. And so I guess I, I, guess I just want to focus people less upon these, these non-fiction, perhaps fictional accounts that we have, and more upon Scripture. 
itself. And then lastly, number seven, I would say this. It's also interesting to note that it's not, it's not only Christians who are writing these books. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, there are secular accounts of near-death experiences. There are Buddhist accounts. There are Islamic accounts. Um, every religion has people writing these books. And it's interesting uh, that they're all very similar in a sense that they describe heaven, they describe God, a God, the God of their religion. They talk about bright colors and lights and things like that. And so if we're going to allow for Christian evangelical books, I think that, that kind of takes away from our ability to say, no, no, but your account, uh, Mr. Muslim, of going to heaven and being with God actually is not true because we know that only those uh, who believe in Christ, because he is the way, the, the truth, and the life. Only those who believe in Christ will be in heaven. Uh, but you're basing your faith, you're basing your assurance of heaven upon some extra-biblical narrative. Right? And so, I think it kind of opens the door for us uh, to deal with, uh, in a way that we would not want to deal with, non-Christian books that, that give near-death experience accounts. And so, by way of conclusion, I, I, would, just, I would say this. Number one, I would say while authors of near-death experience books may be sincere, they also may be sincerely wrong in believing that their experience was, was divine. I think that a wise course of action would be to neither affirm nor to deny some near-death experience account. Rather, I, I would encourage us to evaluate these accounts in light of Scripture and constantly affirm what Scripture itself says. And I think that we ought to not overlook the possibility of demonic deception uh, as, as well. Number two, I would say this by way of conclusion, in light of the biblical materials uh, that relate to near-death experiences, I, I guess I would encourage us as believers to be suspicious at best uh, about, about these books, and I would encourage immature believers to be wise uh, and, and perhaps even avoid the genre altogether. That if you don't know what the Bible says about death and dying and resurrection and visions of heaven and the afterlife, I think that you might not want to open yourself up to someone's extra-biblical narrative because you might accidentally uh, conflate the narratives and the material and be believing in something that's not scriptural. And lastly, for those who have been encouraged by reading near-death experience books in the past, and trust me, these people are in your church, I would say this. I would encourage us to educate such individuals about the biblical and theological problems with these books. I certainly want to hold up Scripture. And certainly then I would furthermore want to point readers of these books to scriptural material on heaven and hell and encourage them to not go beyond that which is written, 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 6. And so lastly, let me conclude by just quoting a bit of a letter uh, written a little over a month ago. I mentioned the book earlier, uh, the 2010 book, The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven, a true story written by Kevin Malarkey, which was the account of his son Alex's um, near-death experience uh, as a result of a car accident that he was in. And uh, January 15, 2015, just a little over a month ago, Alex wrote a letter uh, to all the Christian bookstores uh, nationwide uh, that were selling um, the book his father wrote. And this is what Alex says. He says, Please forgive the brevity of this letter, but because of my limitations, I have to keep this short. I did not die. I did not go to heaven. I said I went to heaven because I thought it would get me attention. When I made the claims that I did, I had never read the Bible. 
People have profited from my lies, and they, can, and they continue to do so. These people should read the Bible, which is enough. The Bible is the only source of truth. Anything written by a man cannot be infallible. It is only through repentance of your sins and a belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, who died for your sins, that you can be forgiven and go to heaven. May you learn of heaven from what is written in the Bible, not by reading a work of man. I want the whole world to know that the Bible is sufficient. In Christ, Alex Malarkey. Let's close in prayer. Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful, Lord, for how you have seen fit to disclose things to us, Lord, about death, about the afterlife, Lord, uh, about uh, the eternal state. And indeed, Lord, I, as I mentioned earlier, I, I'm even encouraged a bit by the modern phenomena of near-death experience books, Lord, how it's revealing, uh, perhaps prompting uh, a belief in those in our churches, those in the culture, to ask questions uh, about you, about things of you, about death, about heaven, about hell. And I trust, Lord, that, that those who have read these books in the past and those who will read them in the future, or I trust that you would even work through the things that are, are disclosed in these books, that you would cause people that read these books, Lord, to, um, to be aware, to be discerning, to see when things that are written in these books don't match up with Scripture. And may such an awareness, Lord, of discrepancy uh, prompt and move individuals to have a greater desire for your word, to read more of your word. And may such reading of your word, Lord, just be the means, Lord, through which your spirit brings about faith and through which many come into your kingdom. I trust, Lord, that you would give us wisdom as we talk with those in our circles of friends, those in our churches, those in our small groups, Lord, just about this topic. And I trust, Lord, that even through the material today, Lord, that we've had a chance to work through, that you'd be pleased to use this, Father, to bring many into your kingdom, to encourage the saints and to glorify your Son. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.